there, and thank you for tuning in to the Occlusal Table. I'm one of your hosts, Taylor Jackson. And it's your girl, Jasmine Clyde. And today, we have the pleasure of having dentists on our panel to discuss their experiences, their journey to their specialty, and taking a deeper look into residency. Let's get started. We are super, super duper excited for this specialty today. And our first panelist is Dr. Christine Lemon, who grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada. She obtained her Bachelor of Science in Biology at the University of Nevada, Reno. She went on to receive her Doctor of Dental Surgery degree at the Herman Ostrow School of Dentistry of USC. There, she spent most of her time as an active member in domestic and international dental outreach programs and served as student body president. She then completed a three-year anesthesia residency at NYU Langone Hospital, Brooklyn, shout out to New York, serving as chief resident. Dr. Lemon is currently a dentist, dental anesthesiologist in Las Vegas, Nevada, and Phoenix, Arizona. All right. And our next panelist, we have Dr. George Jabber, who is a board-certified dental anesthesiologist and dental surgeon. He earned his Doctorate of Dental Surgery degree from the Herman Ostrow School of Dentistry of USC after completing his undergraduate studies at USC. After dental school, he completed an internship in oral and maxillofacial surgery at The Ohio State University, then residency in dental anesthesiology at NYU Langone Hospital in Brooklyn, followed by surgical implant dentistry residency at UCLA. He stays connected to academia, as an attending anesthesiologist for postgraduate specialty residents and students at USC. In addition, he maintains private practice in both Los Angeles and San Francisco. Let's give it up for our guest. (laughs) All right. Very decorated. We love that. And we're so excited to have dental anesthesiology as a topic of conversation since it's a fairly new specialty out there. So um, our listeners and us, we would love to know, um, what uh, dental anesthesiology entails and what created the demand for an- dental anesthesiologists. So we can start with Dr. Lemon. Hi guys, thanks for having us on. Um, so dental anesthesiology, although it became an official recognized specialty by the ADA, it's actually been around for quite some time now. Um, so basically, um, we work with dentists to see a wider range of patients, a lot of them pediatric, pre-cooperative age, mentally disabled with cognitive disabilities, dental phobic, a lot of anxious patients um, for a wide variety of procedures. So implants, um, oral surgery, um, complete oral rehab of pediatric patients. Um, So uh, that's basically, you know, we we provide sedation, um, whether it be moderate, deep, or full general anesthesia with intubating patients. Um, We provide that for those uh, patients. Yeah. um, The only other thing I would add is that we basically bring, first of all, uh, sorry, I want to say thank you for having us on. It's a real pleasure to talk with you guys and also, uh, you know, explain a little bit about what we do. Uh, But the only other thing I would add to that is that we basically bring hospital level uh, anesthesia to the dental office. So it's a little different than, uh, you know, giving a little bit of uh, oral medication. You know, we really do bring all the different emergency equipment, monitors, 
Uh, we take the time to do really thorough preoperative assessments and risk mitigation, uh, you know, protocols to make sure that we can prevent, like provide a safe uh, and smooth day for both the dentist, the patient, and ourselves. That is awesome. Um, and then when did you decide to even pursue uh, dental anesthesiology and why? So I think um, at USC, uh, both Dr. Jabber and I got kind of lucky that um, you're pretty exposed to this specialty um, as a dental student. So we have an anesthesia selective at USC. Um, and in that selective, you're taught how to respond to certain emergencies. You're actually the emergency response team for the dental school. Um, so um, also at the dental school, we have an OR suite um, where we see um, patients with the perio residents, pediatric residents. So you're able to observe GA cases um, and see the impact that you're able to have in, on those patients that we see. Yeah, so that, um, that dental anesthesia and the eye, well, so we call it the dental anesthesia or the IV team, the doctor stat selective. Uh, and that's been around for about 45 years at this point. We were really, really lucky to have a faculty named uh, Dr. Stanley Malamed for a lot of years. And he, you guys may know that name because he wrote the books for local anesthesia and uh, emergency medicine in the dental office and stuff like that. So he was actually our faculty. Um, I got a chance to interact with him a decent bit. And then, um, and so he started that uh Dr. Stat IV team uh, at the school, which is really, really helpful in terms of like real tangible exposure to the specialty. And then once he retired, uh, the, the current head of that and one of my close friends and mentors is named Dr. Jimmy Tong. Dr. Jimmy Tong is uh, spearheading all of that and many, many other things uh, at the moment, but he really does a great job of providing uh, a place where this there's, there's exposure to the specialty um, and really allows uh, anybody and uh, anyone that's interested to be immersed in the specialty. So it's really, really a beneficial place to be. Um, and it was so helpful that uh, I was the guy who interviewed for the, spe the anesthesia specialty saying that I wanted to be an oral surgeon. And that was a very, controversial interview process for me, <laughs> uh, but it went fine. And they eventually forgave me at some point. And it was totally okay because they hired me back on to be a faculty. And so I am now one of those faculty that helps uh, Dr. Stat IV team students uh, to, you know, have the same exposure. And so I, I, yeah, I, I appreciate all of that because those guys took the time to do it for me. And so now I'm doing it for people that are following, you know, in that path and are interested as well. And so now not every dental school has an IV team or Dr. Stat uh, selective, but there are dentist anesthesiologists all around the country. Many of them are happy to work with people. I know it's a little bit tough right now during COVID, but, you know, everyone's pretty approachable and pretty easy to talk to and is worth reaching out to. So I would encourage anybody who, uh, is interested to reach out to uh, someone in their area, and you know you can reach, you can check out uh, the ASDA website. Uh, I believe it's asda.org, and that'll give you a list of active uh, 
dentist anesthesiologist around the country. So that way you could potentially reach out to someone. That's wonderful. I definitely agree about paying it forward. Um, when someone teaches you something, you definitely want to give that knowledge to somebody else. And it also helps you learn um, a little more. Um, so we would love to know what resident res- residency was like, how long was it? And what was that process like? Was it crazy? I, was, <laughs> I, I, I did a lot of residency, but since we're going to talk about this one, I think Dr. Lemon has a better, uh, a better uh, example of what, what it was like. <laughs> Uh, so residency for anesthesia used to be a year, then it went to two years, and um, across the board now it's a total of three years. Um, all the programs you train alongside medical anesthesiologists, um, you basically, in residency, to be honest, you do more procedures and other things than you do dentistry. So you'll do general surgery, ENT, OBGYN, plastics, trauma, orthopedics, neurosurgery, bariatrics. Um, and you, um, I can speak for NYU, but we complete rotations in internal medicine, emergency response, um, and then also we spend some time in the surgical medical ICU. Um, and you do um, second and third year at NYU, you do rotations um, in the dental office setting. We have um, mobile rotations is what we call them. You'll, so you'll spend um, four months your second year and four months your third year. Um, so you provide anesthesia for full mouth rehab, OMFS, implants, and all of that. Um, so there's eight programs total in the U.S. Um, that's probably why most people haven't even heard of it. Um, and also there's only like about 200-something of us total in the country. So eight programs. Um, the website actually is uh, adba.org if um you guys are interested in checking out those programs. It has a list of the residencies with their um, contact information there. Um, but yeah, I mean, residency is a, uh, you, you learn and you train uh, medical anesthesia. You know, it's, it's not always catered to dentistry and that's how they train you is you train at the top so that you can handle any emergency. That's a really great point. And I think another thing to consider is that uh, you know, the, the learning curve is pretty steep for a, a new graduate dental student to jump right in, but they train, like like Dr. Lemon said, right alongside the physician anesthesiologist. We do all the same procedures, and then we're also like a little bit of a subspecialty because we tend to handle all the head and neck procedures. So all the dentistry, all the OMS, all the like ENT. I mean, yes, the physician anesthesiologists do it as well, but we tend to be the go-to when there's a difficult airway case. Um, at least when I was a resident, that seemed to be the situation. Uh, oftentimes when that was happening, we would be the ones that the attending would call on to come help with that more often. Um, and so you get a really unique perspective because not only do you get to have subspecialty training, you know, informally with the head and neck sort of stuff, you still do everything that you might do, uh, the physician anesthesiologist might do. And so you're really, really prepared to head out in, in terms of handling cases. Now, what experience and good judgment will teach you is that you now have to consider your setting, your backup, your preparation, what, what procedure you're doing. And so a procedure that might have been okay in a hospital setting is probably not, is not necessarily okay in an office setting, is not necessarily okay to do there's a lot of different considerations and that's that's what you learn by doing these different offsite rotations 
it, that's what you learn by having a strong um, connection with your colleagues and, and being able to ask your attendings because it's a very personal relationship after a while because you work so close to there's not like there's there's a, our program is fairly large at NYU, but there are not that many. There's six per year. So you get a pretty close relationship with your attendings. I still talk to a bunch of mine regularly. And, you know, if I ever have a question about a case, you know, I don't do it as much these days, but um, I still do. And there's absolutely no ego or shame in it, but I will call and say, Hey, what do you think about this or that? And they'll tell me what they think after their years of experience. And, and, and it's all good because we're all doing this for the safety of patients, not to say, Oh, I can do any kind of case you throw at me. I'm comfortable with a lot of stuff, but there's no need. It's all about trying to make uh, a service available that otherwise would not have been because like Dr. Lemon said, these special needs patients, these patients that are pre-cooperative, these patients that have phobias, all these things, it would not be available to that patient. I, I just spoke with a patient that I treated recently that did not know that sedation was a option. And she's been avoiding the dentist for several years. And now that she found out sedation is an option, she's able to get the stuff that she needed. And, you know, it's been a game changer for her life. So, you know, that's just one example of how that can be a situation. And it's also, it's also something a general dentist can consider because if you're constantly dealing with difficult cases or patients that are uh, giving you a hard time or having to take breaks or have ga bad gag reflexes or difficult to get numb or a whole list of things. You got to think like you can do that in your first couple years out, but at some point that's going to be really difficult, especially if you're trying to see a lot of patients and you're stressed out and you have this and that going on and you just, you can't sit and give each patient as much TLC as you did the first six months of practice. And hopefully you don't get jaded or anything, but you also have to take care of yourself and not stress your body out too much because that does take a toll. So it's not just so that we can provide services to patients that would not normally get it. It's also so the general dentist or specialist has the opportunity to deliver the care that they're hoping to deliver without compromising things because of patient compliance. So there's a lot of reasons why this is a thing. That's great. That brings me to the next point, talking about the business side of it. Um, it is good. I, I worked at a dental office and they had an anesthesiologist come in for, I think it was once a week, something like that. But I guess if the general dentist had I, the background in anesthesiology, he could have handled that himself. But that's a good point that you make, um, Dr. Jabber, to be able to be equipped to serve these patients. Um, so would you all suggest um, working for a DSO a sole private practice office, be a traveling anesthesiologist or associateships? So uh, both of us have taken the role of being more of a private practice. Um, I've, I've taken that role, uh, you know, as I knew that was always my, my route. DSOs not, Com they don't commonly hire anesthesiologists, but some of them do. I know a couple of my friends do work for some DSOs. Um, you know, you really have to just go after the practice model that fits your personality and your professional goals. Uh, some people like the um, approach and volume that you might have at a DSO 
or a chain. Uh, and some people want more of a um, different pace, I guess you could say. I mean, there's no right answer. It just kind of depends on how you like to do your thing and what matters to you. If you want to not stress about um, finding offices and buying equipment and, you know, doing all the nitty gritty, then maybe you want to join a practice and, and be an employer and be an associate. Um, but if you are okay with the more entrepreneurial stuff and it fits your personality, that's okay too. So. So then just like what, um, even what Dr. Lemon was referring to, uh, as far as residency going up from one year to two years and now three years, you know, I'm sure that there might, is there a tuition cost that's attached to that? Um, is there a stipend? Uh, and if so, what piece of business or financial advice would you have given your younger self to prepare to enter into this specialty? So there is no tuition cost for uh, residency. Um, you do get, um, it's a salary. Um, it's a stipend that you receive every two weeks. Um, NYU, I think, um, actually got one of the higher salaries, although it is New York, so it's actually not <laughs> when you look at how much rent costs. Um, but I would say um, if I could tell my younger self, it would definitely be to save more money, um, even though there was no tuition associated with it. Yeah, I would agree. I think that, um, you know, well, look, when I was in residency, I didn't really go out and splurge. There were times where I did go out um, and you have to have a release. You have to have a way to let your mind relax because residency can be very taxing. Um, Self-care is a very important and helpful thing that I still struggle with because it's hard to manage all the different things with practice and life and all that sort of stuff but it's important to make that a priority. That said, yes, you can save money and never go out, but I would say you should make some time to hang out with your co-residents, build some camaraderie, have fun, make sure to give yourself a break because residency can be a very challenging time. Um, Fortunately, uh, anesthesia programs are generally more relaxed and, um, I, I stay relaxed in terms of personal interactions. They're, they're very intense in terms of the work and the hours and that sort of stuff. Um, but as you guys mentioned earlier, I also did a, a surgery internship and that was a whole nother level of difficulty in terms of uh, personalities and stuff like that. Um, you know, that's not a comment specifically on anything other than, you know, it can be difficult. So just make sure to do whatever it takes for you to stay like happy and, and, and level and take care of yourself. So that way you don't feel the burnout because that's real. So, um, you know, there's not a like, as Dr. Lemon was saying, there's not a lot of leeway with your salary and based after, after you pay taxes and rent and all this sort of stuff, you're not left with a ton, but it's okay to kind of enjoy yourself. So you don't burn out. So then even with all of that um, being said, were you guys able to do any moonlighting during um, residency or anything like that? You know, just any type of extra jobs on the side just so you can uh, compensate, <laughs> you know, um, financially? They might have changed this, but when I was in residency, um, I think in the state of New York to get a license there, you had to either have done a GPR or 
Do you remember what that is, Dr. Jabber? Yeah, so yeah, so you had to do at least a GPR, but as of last year, one of the the rules changed. So you either had to do a GPR or another recognized specialty residency or at least one year of it. And now that anesthesia has become a specialty and it also became recognized by the state of New York, uh, the dental board of the state of New York as uh, a residency that they will accept in order to allow licensure. So it is possible to do that. Um, although I think honestly, given the, the rigors of the programs, it's, generally difficult to do that especially after you know you get into the thick of it um there's not a ton of time and when you do, as i said when um you don't have a ton of time to relax but when you do you should take the time to relax instead of going to work i know that it's tempting i know that everyone's got their own you know circumstances and stuff like that but you do really need the time to kind of reset because when you're doing anesthesia you really need to be sharp and on top of your game um it's one of those things where like things can change in a second and you really need to like not be sleep deprived because you're working your other job, you know, late at night, the night before kind of thing. Um, and that's pro that may be why they don't necessarily officially allow it. Uh, I don't know though. It's been a while since I've been in residency. So. I'd say maybe, maybe your second or third year, maybe during like vacation time, maybe you could do that. But like Dr. Jabber said, it is really demanding. Um, residency, 100% is the hardest thing I've done my entire life. And um, I definitely wouldn't do it again. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's definitely, it was definitely worth it. And um, I'm glad I went where I did um, and had the experience that I did. Burnout, that is such an important topic of conversation. I think I personally have suffered from burnout. I might even be burnt out right now um, with COVID and everything. So how did you all handle burnout? And since we're living in a global pandemic still, um, how is that affecting you as well? So I actually um, just finished residency this past June. Um, so I actually was in residency in New York during COVID. Um, so as you guys know, it was hit pretty hard. Um, our DA residents were sent to other areas of the hospital to help with the overwhelming number of patients. We had to add an additional resident on call. Normally, we only have one on call every day. Had to add an additional one. Some of our um, residents from our off-site rotations had to come back to help. Um, usually, um, the DA residents are only in the OR or in the dental clinic, but we got sent to the ICU, to the emergency department, just to help triage reposition patients to prone and just be part of the airway team for the hospital. Um, when I moved home though, like Dr. Jabber said, I did, I did start my own anesthesia group. And so it's been slow just because of the delay of getting licensure and getting my permit and all that. But, um, you know, I, I think, uh, when you've gone to school this long, it's nice to have a little break and slow down a little bit <laughs> so that you don't get burned out. But yeah, um, it's it's an interesting time. Like my as soon as this hit, I like I I think my last case was March thirteenth, our last couple the day of cases, and then I did not see a patient for two whole months, and that's a very big blow for the you know for that kind of um, you know as being a startup practice and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, and then you slowly ease into it depending on who, you know, then you make clinical decisions about, you know, who should get tested and when, and who are you working with and what kind of, um, uh, precautions are they taking and how seriously are they taking it and all that sort of stuff. And you have to make sure that you work with people that are somewhat like-minded because, you know, it's, this is serious and it can be, um, you know, it can get a little dicey. So you have to do what you can. Um, you know, we're definitely not full blown back to normal. I know some people don't really care and they do their thing and, you know, teach his own, you do whatever you need to do. Um, I don't think there's a right or wrong at this particular point. I just got to go with what makes me be able to sleep at night. And I think that's, that's kind of a general theme that I kind of live by. And I think is helpful for new grads coming out is, you know, do what you got to do and make sure you can sleep at night. Um, I know a lot of people get really worked up and stressed out about it um, because they have pressures to do things that will not let them sleep at night. And you gotta, you gotta imagine with anesthesia too, that, the stakes are really high. So I'll tell you when I first started, like I wasn't sleeping all that well. Now I'm a lot more comfortable with what I'm doing and how I'm doing it and that sort of stuff. Not that I wasn't comfortable at that point, but it's just a different sort of situation. And so that's always been a guiding principle. And that's one thing that I would impart on a new grad or someone that is looking at different specialties. It's like, what can you do that will help you feel more comfortable and be in your element and do what you need to do to really excel. Like, I feel like I really excel when I'm doing the things that I love to do. And, you know, I'm kind of a unique one in that sense where I do both surgery and anesthesia. And so that makes me happy. And I do those things. Um, but at the end of the day, um, especially with COVID thrown in the mix, everything has changed and, and getting back to all that, you just need to be flexible to pivot to the next thing. That's the safest thing to do. Uh, because we're all just working with the little bits that we have at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And even speaking of um, being comfortable, you know, Dr. Jabber, um, and given the climate of everything and knowing what you both know now, um, what advice would you give to someone who's aspiring um, to pursue dental anesthesiology? I'd say, you know, there's no recipe for anesthesia. Um, People have different techniques and styles. It's just like in dental school. You take things that you like from all your different faculty members, and that's what you do when, you, when you're when you out. Um, so I'd say shadow as many DAs as possible. Ask all the questions that you can. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things where when you start it, you, you really have to know that you want it if you're going to go into this. You know, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't be halfway in. Um, and so research and visit the programs, even just location is really important. Um, you know, I, I lived on the West Coast up until I moved to New York. And so that was the first time without a car. And you have to think like, okay, well, how long does it take to get to the subway? And how, am I, how long is that walk? Oh, it's 5 a.m. Like, it's, it's pitch black outside. So those are all things like you really have to think about um, when you're looking into a program. But, you know, just do your research, ask as many questions, and reach out to people. Yeah, I think that covers it really well. Just be as well-versed as you can. Um, You know, if you can get in to see what a case looks like, um, again, it doesn't mean that that case is the only way it's done. It's done many different ways, like Dr. Lemon said. Um, But exposure is really, really helpful. Um, Like like she said, reaching out to the programs, maybe kind of asking them what they're doing to kind of adapt to this because they may have 
some information to give you that you normally would have gotten visiting the program, but you can't visit now. So, you know, maybe there's, there's a, an adaptation um, that's a little bit more applicable for the times. Um, but honestly, like I said, anesthesia programs are really um, agreeable and they're really approachable. So, you know, I would say start early and, uh, and just be normal, be yourself, be relaxed. You know, there's, there's no need to be super gunner. So. All right. Well, Dr. Jabber and Dr. Lemon, thank you so much again for being on the show. (laughs) And talking about dental anesthesiology, I'm sure our listeners truly enjoyed all of the information that you both have given today. Um, Do you both have any closing remarks or an Instagram to where our followers can find you? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having us. It was a real pleasure to chat with you both and uh, you know, speak a little bit about what we do. Um, if anyone has any questions, feel free to reach out on Instagram. Uh, mine is my name at Dr. George Javer. Um, and yeah, feel free. Happy to chat. Yeah, same here. Thank you guys for having me. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions anyone has. If anybody wants to reach out, um, I can give you some contacts that I have also. Um, and my Instagram is nv.dentalanesthesia. All right. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Well, let's go ahead and wrap things up and transition into Taylor's takeaways. And today I'd like to discuss the difference between productivity and busyness. And these tips on how to be productive and not busy are from Forbes magazine. So the first one is to focus on one thing at a time. So there are a million things that you could be doing, but what is the one thing that would deliver you the most results first? And that's what you're supposed to do. The second one is to master your calendar. So I know I've gotten this from a a tutor that I've had in the past. If it's not on my calendar, it's not happening. So make sure you uh, schedule properly so that you can help uh, stay on track um, when it comes to your work. And it, if, it, if it is a calendar, you are, if it's on your calendar, you are more likely to stick to that plan. And the last one, think smaller. Um, learn to set smaller, accomplishable goals to work in a more effective and efficient manner. So being busy is about working harder, while being productive is about working smarter. Being busy is frantic while being productive is focused. Being busy is fueled by perfectionism, while being productive is fueled by purpose. All right, Taylor. That was great. I will live by a to-do list. Checking off those boxes is awesome. Thank you, Taylor, for that. And I just wanted to talk about Zoom, y'all. So for the holiday season, Zoom has agreed to lift the 40-minute time limit usually set for each Zoom session. Since many families have decided to spend the holidays together virtually, this is a great opportunity to chit-chat with family members. Not only are they doing this in the U.S., but across the globe. So I think that's wonderful for Zoom to do for families, especially during this crazy time. Oh, yeah, that is awesome, you know, to help uh, lower whatever spikes and prevent any other type of spikes during this holiday season. So that's awesome. Shout out to Zoom. If you like what you hear, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Occlusal Table Pod for more updates on the show and be sure to give us a shout out.
Want to ask us questions or give suggestions on topics that you'd like to hear? Then email us at theocclusaltablepodcast at gmail.com. We love to hear feedback from our listeners, so don't forget to leave a thumbs up, five stars, and a review on whichever platform you're listening on. Well, that's all we have for today. So until next time, this is The, the Occlusal Table. Table.